And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. A faithful Catholic nun spends uh, her entire life working in a slum in a poor country. She feeds the poor, she ministers to the sick and dying, and she cares for the orphans. And as she nears death, you ask her why she thinks that God should let her into, in, into heaven, into the hospital, into heaven. That's a good hospital. Uh, she replies, because I have devoted my life uh, to serving Him. I have denied myself for these decades. Uh, I hope that I have added enough merits that God will accept me. Now, based on that, she dies and she faces God's eternal wrath because her faith was in her own works, not in uh, the shed blood of Jesus Christ uh, alone. Meanwhile, on death row, a serial killer awaits execution. He mercilessly tortured, raped, and murdered many young women. And of course, those families mourn the tragic loss of their daughters a chaplain, chaplain visits this killer and finds that he has been reading the Bible. God has convicted him of his terrible sins so that he despairs now about, uh, about dying and having to face God. He knows that he deserves eternal torment in hell. But the chaplain shares that if he will believe in Jesus Christ who died for the ungodly, God will forgive all of his sins and actually credit Christ's righteousness to his account. Well, this murderer, he does believe. <laughs> Suddenly he's filled with joy. And he goes to his execution at peace with God. And he spends eternity in the unspeakable joy of heaven. Now, do those two stories grate at your soul? They do to some level, right? We, we long for fairness. But if God were fair, we would never experience his grace. And that's what our passage is about this morning. Uh, we want to scream, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, that's not, not, it's not fair. That, 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 that sweet, selfless old nun deserves to go to heaven, while that evil, depraved murderer deserves to burn in hell. And if that's your reaction, uh, then you may not understand this crucial bedrock message that Paul sets forth in our text. What he's telling us today is that God graciously justifies the ungodly sinner who does not work for salvation, but simply believes in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this can be a difficult uh, thing to understand uh, and for us to accept and embrace. Uh, we are so used, particularly in the Western world, to having to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to doing our part, to contribute in some way. Now, Father, that's, that's all against grace. So I pray that you would just take the scales off of our eyes that we can see, Father. Open our hearts to understand this truth that it is by nothing that we do. It is simply believing in Jesus and what He has already done. God, make that a reality today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in Romans 4, 5, which is the last verse that uh, Ron read a minute ago, Paul makes one of the most outrageous claims in all of Scripture. He says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That's really a staggering verse. Surely that must be a, a copious error along the way. Paul must have said, God justifies the one who tries to do his best. 
Uh, God justifies the nice person who always meant well, who, who loved his family, devoted his time and money uh, to help the needy, went to church, uh, read his Bible every day, and prayed every day. Surely that's what Paul means. Well, uh, over a hundred years ago, Charles Spurgeon wrote a book called All of Grace, and he comments on Romans 4, 5. Here's what he says. I have heard that men that hate the doctrines of the cross bring it as a charge against God that He saves wicked men and receives to Himself the vilest of the vile. See how this Scripture accepts the charge and plainly states it. You thought, did you not, that salvation was for the good? And because you are not good, therefore, there could be no way of your enjoying His favor." You must be somewhat surprised to read a text like this, Him that justifieth the ungodly. I do not wonder that you are surprised, for with all my familiarity with the great grace of God, I never cease to wonder at it. End quote. Well, my aim today is that all of you will understand this crucial point, this doctrine that is at the core of the gospel, and that you will join Spurgeon in, in worshiping God uh, who has justified you. Paul is still hammering on the religious Jew or any other religious person, in fact, who thinks that he qualifies for heaven because of his religion and or good works. He brings up Abraham because Abraham uh, was the father of the Jews. He was the father of the faith, and, and the Jews revered Abraham. Now, many early, early Jewish writings, they put Abraham on a pedestal in a way that the Bible that we read does not. So many Jews assume that Abraham was right with God, at least in part because of his life of obedience. And it's a short step from there to believing that any person who follows Abraham's example of obeying God will be accepted by God. But in Romans 4, Paul challenges that view really just head on. He's not going to duck it. The flow of thought in chapter 4 is as follows. In verses 1 through 8, Paul expands on and illustrates with Abraham and David that we'll, Lord willing, look at in a couple weeks. Uh, we didn't mention, but next week is the Lord's Supper. Okay, so just, just be mindful of that. Uh, we're also having a baby dedication. It's going to be a busy day. It's going to be a good day, though. Uh, so he illustrates with Abraham and David the principle that we saw back in chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, that we are justified by faith and not by our works. And what that means is we now have no grounds for boasting, right? And then verses 9 through 16 in chapter 4, they develop the theme of chapter 3, verses 29 and 30, that righteousness by faith applies equally to Jews and Gentiles. He proves this by showing that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. So God can justify uncircumcised Gentiles who follow the faith of Abraham. Then verses 17 through 22, they, they explain the nature of Abraham's faith. And finally, in verses 23 through 25, Paul applies the lesson of Abraham's faith to his readers. Now, it's absolutely essential for you to understand the doctrine that Paul sets forth here in verses 1 through 5, that we are justified or declared righteous by faith alone apart from works. We've seen that phrase several times in the past few weeks. See, God agrees. He's, he's grumbling. Apart from works. It was when Martin Luther finally understood this truth that he was saved. 
He called justification by faith the chief article on which, I lost it, the chief article from which all of our other doctrines have flowed. He said, if the article of ju justification by faith is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. He argued, it alone, meaning justification by faith alone, it alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. John Calvin called justification by faith the main hinge on which religion turns. He explained, for unless you first of all grasp what your relationship to God is and the nature of His judgment concerning you, you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one on which to build piety towards God. Piety meaning good works, doing what is right. So in other words, this truth is foundation to your foundational to your entire Christian life. So it's not by accident that it's always under fire. We talked about this, was that last Sunday night? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Sunday night. I can't remember, you know. I forget. Um, but uh, what we talked about there was that the world is always going to be against God and the godly. It's, it, that's just the way it is. It's us against them, okay? We cannot deny that. Uh, so it's no accident that it's, this doctrine has always been under fire. The Catholic Church launched what they called the Counter-Reformation, and they published the canons and decrees of Trent in large, partly to attack justification by faith. In our day, actually it's probably gone on for the past 30 years, the, the unity movement. That has sought to break down any divisions between Protestants and Catholics by advocating that we come together on the things that we agree on and set aside the things that divide us. Things like justification by faith. Well, the new perspective on Paul. Y'all ever read N.T. Wright? Brilliant man. I give him, God gave him some, some thinking ability. Okay, but that whole new perspective on Paul, it argues that the Reformers actually misinterpreted Paul regarding this doctrine. But if the Reformers were right that this doctrine is the foundation of our salvation, then justification by faith plus works cannot be right. We cannot politely agree to disagree on the core of the gospel. Now, for your own salvation for your being able to resist the winds of false doctrine in our day, and for your being able to present the gospel clearly to those who are trusting in their good works to save them, you must be clear on this truth. God graciously justifies the ungodly sinner who believes in Jesus. Paul first demonstrates this in the life of Abraham, and then he illustrates it negatively by a really common example that you're going to understand, and he states it positively in rather shocking language. So, number one, God justified Abraham by faith alone, not by his works. That's verses 1 through 3 here. Paul goes back to the theme of boasting. And so, several sub-points here. A, if Abraham had been justified by works, he would have, he would have had something to boast about. 
Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Some commentators argue that the phrase, according to the flesh, that that should not modify forefather, but rather was gained. In other words, is there something that Abraham gained according to the flesh uh, that, that actually gained uh, righteousness apart from being justified by God's grace? That's not a real popular view, but it's out there. Others argue that it should actually modify forefather. That's the way the ESV, the NASB all translate it. Paul is referring to Abraham as the Jewish forefather by lineage. Now, there may also be a hint that fleshly descent from Abraham is insufficient for what Paul is talking about. And verse 2 explains verse 1. He says, For if Abraham has, was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Most commentators understand that last little phrase there, you know, something to boast about, but not before God. Uh, they mean when God's viewpoint is considered that Abraham has no right to boast at all before men or before God. But Paul could be conceding to his Jewish readers, okay, maybe Abraham has some grounds to boast before men. After all, Abraham was a godly man overall. But when you bring God into the picture, all of a sudden, Abraham's boast vanishes. It's like one, bat, one bug bragging to another, I'm taller than you, just before a human comes along and squishes them both. Well, yeah. When you compare humans to humans, Abraham looks pretty good. And we could, we could name off a lot of people that are like that, right? That we, we look at them, whether it's somebody from history or somebody even today that you admire because they're following the Lord. Uh, and when you compare them to other hum humans, they, they really shine. But when you compare them to God, what do we find out? All of what 118 through 320 told us, uh, we're all bugs. <laughs> we all deserve to be squished. None of us are righteous. Paul's point in, in, in 4, 1 and 2 is that if justification were by, were by works rather than by faith alone, it would actually give us grounds for boasting. It would feed our pride. Uh, but, one's, but such boasting is foolish because we're really just one big bug uh, boasting to another bug. What's the best of human righteousness when you compare it to God's absolute righteousness? So Paul is attacking this popular Jewish view about Abraham in his day saying he couldn't have been justified by his works. And then he supports his argument with Scripture. And this is B, Scripture clearly teaches that Abraham was justified by faith alone. Paul says, for what does Scripture say? So he's going back to Scripture for his ammunition. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Genesis 15, 6 is the first time that the word believe is used in the Bible. It's also the first time that the concept of God crediting righteousness to anyone is mentioned. So this is an important text to understand. Paul not only cites it here, but also in Galatians 3.6. It's there that he's arguing against the Judaizers. If you'll remember, they were the ones who said that you must add works to faith in order to be saved. 
Now, the passage in Genesis raises some questions. What did Abraham believe, and why did God credit to him, credit it to him for righteousness then? Well, we know that he had believed God previously. It says that God spoke to him when he was in the what is it, Ur of the Chaldeans, and that by faith he moved all the way to the land of Canaan. So Abraham was already what we would call saved before this particular experience in Genesis 15:6. So why does Moses mention in Genesis 15:6 that Abraham believed God and that God reckoned it to him as righteousness? Well, Martin Luther said that Abraham was justified by faith long before this time that we're talking about in Genesis 15, but that it was first recorded in this context, the Genesis 15 context, in a connection where the Savior is definitely involved in order that none might venture to separate justification from the Savior. John Calvin thought it's mentioned here long after Abraham was first justified to prove that justification does not just begin by faith only to be perfected later by works. No, justification is by faith alone apart from works from start to finish. So Genesis 15 is simply ratifying Abraham's earlier faith. Now Derek Kidner, he's more of a modern um, commentator, um, he notes that Abraham's faith was two things. It was personal, okay? He was believing in the Lord, Yahweh, and it's propositional, meaning he's talking about the Lord's promise concerning a son. More particular, he says, a seed. Abraham knew that through his seed, blessing would come to all the families of the earth. Now in Galatians, Paul draws... He argues that, a, that 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 word seed is actually singular and not plural, and it's pointing to one particular seed. Paul says that seed is Christ. So that's what he's talking about. So when Abraham believed in the Lord, he believed the specific promise that a Savior for all nations would come from his descendants. Now, how much did Abraham know about Jesus who would be born some 2,000 years later? Well, I'm telling you, he knew, he knew more than we tend to give him credit for. Jesus himself said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Paul said that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he promised him, All the nations will be blessed in you. Now, Abraham didn't know Jesus' name, and he had no other evidence than God's promise. But Abraham looked forward in faith to God's Redeemer. As a result of this belief, God credited it to him as righteousness. Now that word credit, it's used 40 times in the New Testament, 34 by Paul. That's 85% of the time Paul is the one using that word. He uses it 19 times in Romans, 11 times in chapter 4. Do you think that word might be important? Well, the, um, it, it's an accounting term, okay? Credit to impute, to charge, you know, for or against. Uh, and it means that God credited, credited to Abraham, <clears throat> excuse me, Abraham, a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. Now, the word it there, he credited it. 
It doesn't refer to Abraham's faith as if God exchanged Abraham's faith for uh, righteousness uh, in some sort of trade. That would give some sort of merit to faith, and, and faith cannot pay the debt of our sin. Rather, faith is a means by which we lay hold of God's promises in Christ. Abraham believed God's promise about the Savior who would come, and God credited the work of the promised Savior to Abraham through his faith. Christ's substitutionary death paid the just penalty of the sins of those who trust in Christ. We've all co we covered a lot of this back in chapter 3. Having illustrated from Abraham's experience as recorded in Scripture that God justifies by faith alone, apart from works, not by works, Paul proceeds then to apply it to every sinner who will believe in Christ. And that's major point number two here. God justifies any ungodly person who does not work for salvation but believes in Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul writes. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. Now that word gift there is the word charis in the Greek. It means grace. <laughs> it's not counted to him as grace but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So first there in verse 4, Paul gives a negative example from everyday life that every one of us probably understands. When you work and your boss pays you, he's not doing you a favor, is he? He's doing what he is supposed to do. And like I said, the word favor or gift there, that check, your, your paycheck is not just a gift. It's what is owed you. It's what you are due. If he doesn't pay you, you can take him to court to get that money. It's a debt that you are owed. But the principle of grace that we see in verse 5 is, is very different. Under grace, you don't work for justification. Rather, you believe God's promise to declare righteous any sinner who trusts in Jesus and His shed blood as the propitiation for your sins. As the righteous judge, God recognizes Jesus' death as the payment in full for all of our sins. The instant we believe in Jesus, God bangs the gavel and He declares, Not guilty. Now, He not only removes our sin and guilt, He also imputes or credits us in the good, in the good column as an asset with the righteousness of Christ. Do you see a negative and a positive? He does away with our sins, which is great, but then He, he throws into our account the righteousness of Christ. Theologians call it the, the great exchange. Okay? He takes our sin, takes it from us, and He gives us His righteousness. How many, I know we got some deal hunters in here. I'm one of them, right? Does that sound like a deal? God says, You give me your sin, I'll give you my son's righteousness. Whew. That's good. So, again, although Paul says here his faith is credited as righteousness, in the context, particularly of, of the last part of chapter 3, he means that the guilty sinner's faith has laid hold of Jesus Christ as the perfect and final sacrifice for sins. Faith is not a work that merits righteousness. If it were, then verse 5 would be saying the opposite of what Paul is arguing. 
Faith does not merit God's favor or grace would then not be undeserved. Grace would be deserved and by definition, it would not be grace. Rather, faith means not doing anything in ourselves to earn salvation, but rather trusting what Christ did for us on the cross. God justifies us as a gift through faith. Faith is kind of like the hand that receives the free gift of right standing with God apart from our works. That's the hard part for us, for, for the vast majority of people, even worldwide. They want to have something to do with their salvation. How many of you, it's hard uh, outside of your family to just accept a really audacious gift? It's hard. You, you want to do something to pay it back. That's kind of, it's one of the things about being in a Western world. That's the way we're wired. But that's not how the gospel works. Now, I want to draw out, draw out four implications just quickly here concerning this justification by faith alone. A, to be justified, you must cease from working for salvation. Paul clearly spells it out. To the one who does not work. If you try to blend your works with God's grace, you're simply muddying the waters of pure grace. If you work to earn justification, then God owes you something. And guess what? God is not going to be a debtor to anyone. If you feel bad about your sins and, and you try to get them under control so that, that God will accept you, then you have not ceased from your working. You do not understand God's grace. If you think that maybe you should become a missionary or go and live and work in a slum for years, depriving yourself of the normal comforts of life so that at the end time, God will look at you on judgment day and overlook your sins, you are still working. To be justified by God's grace, you must stop working. B, to be justified, you must see yourself as ungodly. A couple of the songs we sang this morning had verbiage like that. <laughs> and as we were singing it, and I'm looking at the words and what have you, I'm going, yep, that's exactly what I'm talking about. We are not worthy. Paul says that God justifies only one kind of person, the ungodly. There's debate among scholars as to whether Paul is referring specifically to Abraham or whether he means to contrast a notoriously sinful person with the relatively good Abraham. While Abraham was relatively good when you compare humans with humans, in God's sight we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Abraham was as much in need of God's perfect righteous, righteousness as were the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah. In God's sight, there is none righteous, not even one. We're all bugs. So if you see yourself as basically a good person, Paul says you can't be justified. If you see yourself as better than notorious sinners and thus somehow more deserving of salvation, you can't be justified. To be justified, you must see yourself as ungodly and deserving of God's righteous judgment. And it's when you realize that, that you are primed. You're what we call low-hanging low fruit. <laughs> when you realize that you are going to stand guilty before God one day 
You know the bad news. Now you're ready for the good news. Well, see, to be justified, you must believe that God will justify you, the ungodly, through the propitiation of Christ's blood. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Propitiation is not a word we use every day. It means to appease or to set aside the wrath of God. Faith means taking God at His word when He promises to justify the one who has faith in Jesus. You acknowledge that the wages of sin is death. That's eternal separation from the Holy God. But you trust God's promise. He gives us this in chapter 5. He says, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. That's the third time, for the ungodly. Faith means taking the gift of Christ's full payment for your sins, how many of you, if you got fined for something and, you know, it was, you know, 100 times your total assets, that, that'd be kind of discouraging. What if somebody offered and gave you a check to pay it for you? That's what we're talking about here. You didn't deserve it, but somebody is being gracious to you. They're giving you something you do not deserve. That's what justification is. Faith means trusting Jesus to be your advocate in court, to plead His shed blood in your case before the bench of God's justice. Well, lastly, D, to be justified means that God credits Christ's righteousness to your account through faith. If justification were based on how righteous we were in actual conduct then we could never be declared perfectly righteous in this life. And that's simply because we all have indwelling sin. We need Christ's perfect righteousness credited to our account. We need our sin put on Christ's account. And that tra transaction takes place the instant we believe in Jesus. This is a good place to insert one of my favorite verses. You've heard it a dozen times in the last few weeks, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, He was sinless, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ takes on our sin and He gives us out His righteousness. Well, Spurgeon ended that book, All of Grace, by telling a story about an artist, and this was in the years before photography, and he wanted to paint a picture of his part of the city that he was familiar with. And for historic purposes, he wanted to include in his picture certain characters that were well-known in the community. Well, there was this one very poor sweet street sweeper who was unkempt, he was ragged and filthy, and he was known to everyone. And there was a suitable place for him in the picture. So the artist found the man and told him that he would pay him well if he would simply come to the studio for a sitting so that he could paint him. Well, the next day, the man came to the studio, but the artist sent him away. You know why? He had washed his face. He had combed his hair. He had put on a new set of clothes. The artist needed him as the poor beggar that he was. And he was not invited in any other capacity. Now Spurgeon applies it by saying that even so, God invites sinners to come at once for salvation just as they are. Come in your disorder. Come in your confusion. Come in your despair. 
Come filthy, naked, and dirty. It doesn't matter. Come with all of your sin. Come to Jesus crucified for sinners. For who? For the ungodly. If God justifies the ungodly and you're ungodly, guess what? There's hope for you today. The best news in the world is God graciously justifies the ungodly sinner who does not work for salvation, but rather simply believes in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. Sometimes it's hard to understand even though it is so simple. It's against our nature. It's against our culture. We obviously do not really understand what grace is. We see it so little in our surroundings. But Father, if we understand salvation, we know that it is based on Your grace and Your grace alone. Father, You justify the ungodly who do not work. Father, if there's anybody in this building this morning that is in that situation who has been working for their salvation, simply coming to church, trying to appease You, I pray that You would open their eyes to see Jesus for who, who He really is, that they'd be drawn to Him, Father, and that they would forsake their sin and they would turn to You this morning. Do it for Your great name's sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, if you're out there and you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, then you don't really know God. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. You can even know that there is a God. Guess what? The demons believe that there is God. And, and they're going to perish. Right? It's more than just knowing there is a God. You need to know how to know that God. You get to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus accomplished on the cross for the ungodly. It's chapter 5, verse 6, where He says, at the right time, Jesus or Christ died for the ungodly. If that's you this morning, and something is, is kind of knocking on your insides and you don't understand it, we call that the Holy Spirit. He's saying, listen up. Listen up. Come to Me. Not me. That's God talking. Come to me. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Trust what Jesus did some 2,000 years ago now. What He did on the cross. What He did for all mankind. Trust in that. And you will be justified today. I encourage you to do it. If you're a Christian, I hope that you're not trying to... Some, some people believe that, yeah, you're saved by faith, but then it's just a foot race with the devil to see who wins. No. Christ paid for all your sins. Are you being held captive as a believer even today by sin? It's been forgiven. He, he has given the, you the power, okay, through the Holy Spirit to deal with that. But you have been justified. You, you're right standing with God. Now, we talked about this, I believe it was last week, that there are consequences to sin, particularly for us believers. We can't get around that. If we sin, God's going to discipline us. Hebrews 12 tells us that He does it out of love. As a father disciplines his son. So yes, you may get a fanny beaten when you sin, but it's totally out of love. God is just drawing you back with that discipline. I remember getting spanking one time. I was about nine years old. I struck a match upstairs. My daddy walked upstairs. It was his bedroom. And he says, son, have you struck a match? And I was like, no. 
I mean, come on, you could smell it from 40 feet away. So he pulled off his belt and he gave me a good spanking. And about 10 minutes later, he was back downstairs. I went and crawled in his lap. And he said, son, do you know why I spanked you? He says, I didn't spank you because I was mad at you. I didn't even spank you because you struck a match in the house. I spanked you because you lied to me. Man, that was good stuff. I mean, that said, that, that just said, that's a, that's a picture of what God is to us. He disciplines us as believers when we mess up, when we sin, because we will, but it's to draw us back. It's not to, he's not, he's not a, you know, a judge up there with a big long whip going, okay, pow! No, it's out of love. Understand, if you're in Christ, you have been justified. You have, matter of fact, I'll close with this part with this. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, he's talking about chapter 4, which we're in now. Therefore, having been justified by faith, you have peace with God. Not you're at peace or you have the peace of God. No, you have peace with God. The enmity is gone. The hostility. All those words that Paul uses to describe the lost and God. They're gone. And you stand in the grace of God. Paul closes out that section in verse 5 saying that you now stand in the grace of God. How many of you want to stand before God one day? David says if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? Those who have been justified by faith apart from from their works. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.